Happy Sabbath to you all, and greetings to all our friends and brethren and family around the world. Uh, thank you for the beautiful special music, The King of Love My Shepherd Is, just a very meaningful and timely. Welcome to all our guests. As you heard, we had 213 here in attendance today. And I do want to thank all of you who contributed in response to the coworker letter to Living University above and beyond your tithes and offerings. And thank you for those of you who have sent in special offerings as well. So thank you very much for your support. But we do need to pray for more laborers in the harvest. If we'll turn to Matthew, the ninth chapter, Matthew 9. It's one of the instructions Christ gave us, many of the instructions of prayer. Matthew 9, verse verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And that's our mission, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. There's nothing that God cannot heal. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When was the last time you prayed that? It's Christ's instruction. So let's all be sure that we're praying for more laborers, more ministers, more co-workers, more donors, more members for the body of Christ to do God's work. Here in Charlotte, I want to pass on to those around the world that we're speaking to that we are enjoying the beginning of spring blossoms and beauty. Uh, The Bradford pear trees with their light blossoms have just come to their peak uh, this past week and now starting to fade out with the green leaves coming out. And then, of course, the uh, daffodils have been blossoming for several months now. And then uh, this morning, driving out of the uh, driveway, I noticed that the yellow, yellow forsythia bush is blossoming as well. But you can imagine what it was like in Jerusalem in 31 A.D. or even later on in the 60s A.D. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, there were more than 2 million people that would come in from surrounding areas into Jerusalem. So it was a city that was just jam-packed with people. And uh, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. In fact, if you look at some of the old King James Version, it will say the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. But that book was a warning in the 60s to the people of Jerusalem and those in Israel or the Palestine, the Holy Land, because when Titus and his armies destroyed the temple and the city and over a million people who were besieged in that city died. And so when you read the book of Hebrews, keep that in mind. It's a good book to read for preparation for the Passover. It talks about the true high priest, the one who was the priest of Melchizedek, that is Jesus Christ. Many of the Jews at that time should have been converted and should have known that the Messiah had been there, that he was dead, buried, and resurrected, and yet they did not convert. So read the book of Hebrews. I think you'll find it uh, very helpful in preparation for the Passover. Let's turn to Matthew 26. In 31 A.D., Jesus and the twelve apostles met for the Passover, Matthew 26. And uh, we read in verse 23, Matthew 26 and verse 23, they were asking him who was going to betray him. And Jesus answered, who dipped his hand, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. It was a custom, and you might read this in the NIV study Bible, that it was still practiced in the Middle East to this day to take a piece of bread or a piece of meat wrapped in bread and dip it into a bowl of sauce. And sometimes the sauce was made of stewed fruit on the table. And so to show that this was my friend, and in that culture, and even among Arabs today, to eat with a person is tantamount to saying, I am your friend, I will not hurt you. So the NIV study Bible states this, quote, that fact 
made Judas' deed all the more despicable. And so eating the bread and the wine was a very special occasion. It was, of course, the institution of the new covenant. The apostles, of course, confirmed their acceptance of that new covenant as they ate the bread and uh, drank the wine. They were dedicated servants of Christ. So I want to ask you today, just how committed are you and how dedicated are you to God's way of life? How committed are you to your Savior, Jesus Christ? Are you committed for a life? As we prepare for the Passover, what commitments will you make to God our Father? What commitments will you make to our Savior, Jesus Christ? So today, let's consider several commitments, and the title of the sermon is Our Passover Commitments. What is a commitment? According to Webster's, it's to pledge or assign to some particular course or use. We pledge to be faithful in our relationship with God. A covenant is a binding agreement, a formal binding agreement, or a compact. And so by our baptism... We demonstrated our acceptance of the new covenant terms, and we demonstrated our repentance, that is, and our faith towards Christ by stepping out and being immersed in the water and being baptized and coming out of the water to walk in newness of life. Well, the old covenant had a fault with it. We'll just take a look at it briefly here in uh, Hebrews, the eighth chapter, Hebrews 8. We want to make sure that as pioneers of the new covenant, that we won't fall into that trap and commit that fault. Hebrews, the eighth chapter, discusses the old covenant and the new covenant. Hebrews 8 and verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. But what was the fault? Was it with God's agreement? Of course not. But finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that is yet coming. But those at that particular time in in the Holy Land were coming under the new covenant, of course, if, as we all have done, most of us, and some of you will yet in the future, Repent and accept Christ's sacrifice and be baptized and accept that new covenant. Not according to the covenant, verse 9, that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the Egypt, of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. So the problem was with them. They were not deeply dedicated. They were not deeply committed. Verse 13, A new covenant, he says, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So God has called us to be members of the new covenant. And we have an article in Tomorrow's World magazine, A New Covenant, question mark, by Dr. Meredith. That's the Tomorrow's World magazine, November, December 2005. But we can be thankful that we are pioneers and members of the new covenant. At Passover, we renew our acceptance of Christ's sacrifice. We renew the acceptance of his shed blood for the remission of the forgiveness of our sins. We renew our acceptance of Christ's broken body for our healing. And so at Passover, we renew the formal binding agreement, that compact that we made at baptism. Let's look at here Matthew 26, verse 17. Uh, Just back again, I should have told you to hold your place. Matthew 26, verse 17. Now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And that's verse 17 in uh, Matthew uh, 26. So... The disciples prepared the Passover. They prepared it physically. And in Luke's account, uh, Jesus said, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I go on. And so we must prepare physically, as we heard in the sermonette about 
the deleavening lessons, how to do that. But we also will learn more during the days of unleavened bread about the principles and the meaning of unleavened bread. But we also prepare spiritually. And one of the ways of preparing spiritually is to consider what commitments you will make for the Passover this year. So, as I said, let's consider several. And uh, I hesitate to tell you how many, but I will venture to tell you that we will consider ten commitments for the Passover. There are ten commandments. That just happens to be coincidental, by the way. Number one, in considering your commitments for the Passover, be committed to maintain a repentant attitude. A repentant attitude is priceless. A repentant attitude is rare in this world. And we all need to have that attitude until the return of Jesus Christ. I remember one of the most impressionable sermons I ever heard in God's church. I think it was probably in the late 60s in Big Sandy, Texas. Dr. Charles Dorothy was director of the Spanish Department of God's Work and He gave to be what appeared to be the shortest sermon in history in God's church. He was uh, on the stage, and of course in the big tabernacle building, it was a huge building, it was a huge stage, so the speakers had to be on the stage when they were announced. They had chairs there, and so it was uh, right after the special music. Dr. Dorothy got up from his chair, walked across the stage, got in front of the lectern, and he said, Brethren... My message to you today is repent. And then he turned around and sat down in the back of his seat. It was very, it's one I will never forget. I'll never forget that sermon. But he got back up and then finished the sermon after that. But, uh, you know, we all need to remember that word. Uh, Dr. Meredith uh, had an article on the Tomorrow's World magazine, the R word, because it's, It's the word that many preachers in the world forget and uh, neglect. But we need to maintain a repentant attitude. And when we examine ourselves for the Passover, we take a spiritual inventory, and we had a split sermon on that last uh, week. We identify our strengths, we identify our weaknesses, and we also identify sins in our lives. Sins of behavior, sins of attitude, sins of wrong thinking, and sins of dishonesty. I won't turn there, but King David said in Psalm 69, verse 5, O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. We can turn to Psalm 19. Uh, The choir sang that uh, recently, or I think that was the winter weekend, wasn't it, when we sang uh, Psalm 19? Anyway... Yes, Mr. Ruddleston shaking his head yes. That happens to be one of his favorite psalms, at least the last couple of verses of it. Psalm 19, and uh, starting with verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. You know, the human nature is very deceptive. We deceive ourselves. Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. And I have had that problem in the past. I shouldn't tell you some of my presumptuous sins. Oh, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. A frequent uh, prayer and one that uh, I pray every once in a while. But uh, some, of course, have the habit of dishonesty and uh, are not uh, building the character trait of integrity. I I told this story about the dishonest painter at our staff meeting, so apologies to our staff. But for the rest of you, I'll tell the story about the dishonest painter. He was in competition with other painters to paint uh, wooden church buildings, And he would always get the lowest bid. And the reason he did was because he watered down the paint. He thinned the paint. And so he painted one building with the watered down, thinned paint. But the problem was the next day it rained. 
and all the paint washed off the building, and he knew that he had been had, that he had been uh, triggered and found out. So he prayed and he said, Lord, I'm sorry, what shall I do? And a voice came down from heaven saying, Repaint, repaint, and thin no more. He had thinned the paint, of course. But we have to pay for the damage that we do. We have to restore what we've taken. And I I won't turn there, but uh, Zacchaeus, you know the story of Zacchaeus when Jesus came into Jerusalem in Luke 19, and Zacchaeus, a short man, and climbed the tree, and of course he was not accepted by the Jewish community. And uh, anyway, Jesus told him, come down, and, and I'm going to go come to your house, Zacchaeus, today. And Zacchaeus said in Luke 19, verse 8, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. So that's the biblical. You look back in the statues, if someone is caught stealing a sheep, they have to restore it, and this type of thing in multiples, not just to restore the one that was stolen. So... I uh, have with me today, I was thinking about this, and I, I know I need to restore something. I borrowed a book from one of our church members, and uh, I've had it now for two years, and I've been thinking, I've got to return that book. I've got to return that book. And since I'm giving the sermon today, I'm going to return the book today after two years. So we have to look at our lives and see what... What do we have to restore? What do we have to repent of? What do we need to change? We need to repaint and repaint and thin no more. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7 chapter is, of course, the in-depth explanation of the fruits of godly sorrow. And uh, you know the story, the Apostle Paul had written his most extreme corrective letter in 1 Corinthians, and now they had repented, and he thought that he was too severe in writing to them. And so here in verse uh, 8, he said, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. He thought he was really too strong and might have overdone it. But I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians 7. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And I've had the sorrow of the world. You know, I got caught and I was sorry. I was sorry for getting caught. I'm sorry I had to pay a penalty. I was sorry for the embarrassment of uh, being caught in my sin, you know, as, particularly as a teenager and, and uh, even after that, perhaps. But godly sorrow produces a change in a person's mind. Verse 11, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence. So there is going to be fruit... In godly sorrow, worldly sorrow produces no change, but godly sorrow produces diligence. What clearing of yourselves, you really changed your behavior and your attitude. What vehement desire, what fear, what, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things you have proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So we need to again produce the fruits of godly sorrow. And have you seen the fruits of repentance in your own life? Have, has repentance produced indignation, for example, uh, toward what is evil? You know that uh, we have the uh, Ezekiel 9.4 where it says that God is going to protect those who cry and sigh for the abominations that are committed. So we have to recognize sin in the world and make sure that it doesn't, we don't absorb it in our own lives. Remember John the Baptist said to the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 3, Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance? 
So those of you who may be counseling for baptism need to realize, yes, there needs to be dramatic, significant change in my life. I need to bring forth actual fruits of repentance. And we just read some of those in 2 Corinthians 7. So we have to understand that there is one thing that we need to change in, in the process of preparing for Passover. We examine ourselves. And we heard the uh, split sermon last week on taking a spiritual inventory. And I know it uh, takes a lot of courage, but uh, I knew I was going to <laughs> uh, encourage you all to ask others for an evaluation. So on the way here in the car, I asked my wife, Honey, I have a lot of things I need to change in my life, but if there's one thing that I could change, what would it be? And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but she, you know, she thought about it and, and told me, and, and I said a silent prayer afterwards. I said, well, thank you, Father. Thank you for that correction. Thank you for something that I can work on and change. And it was silent for quite a while, and after a while, she asked me. I was waiting for her to ask, but... It took a while. She asked me, and I told her one thing that she could change. So as we prepare for the Passover, you know, it it really makes a difference, that, that interchange, exchange between my, my, my wife and me and coming here today and saying, what do I need to change in my life? And you realize, yes, we aren't perfect. We still have human nature. We still have our faults and weaknesses and bad habits. And, uh, of course, it's like the the Scottish uh, poet uh, Robert Burns, you know, would God give us the gift to see ourselves as others see us? Uh, We see everyone else's fault, and you can take a look and say, oh, what's, what's wrong with that person? I'll give you a list of 20 things wrong with that person, and we don't see it in ourselves. And so we have to prepare for the Passover realizing we need to change. And we need to have a repentant attitude and be able to respond to correction. And we fear God, of course, to the extent that we realize the enormity and the seriousness and the penalty of sin. And we, of course, through the days of unleavened bread and Passover, thank God that Christ has freed us by his blood and by his life from slavery to sin. And that's where we can be very, very, very thankful. So are you determined to replace sinful behavior and attitudes with God's righteous, loving behavior and attitudes? Be committed, number one, to maintain a repentant attitude. Number two, be committed to accept God's forgiveness. Be willing to accept God's forgiveness. Turn to 1 John, the first chapter, 1 John 1. Do you ever feel guilty? No, Adam and Eve felt ashamed. They had disobeyed, but they tried to blame their sin on the serpent or on each other. Others may try to make you feel guilty. They, they give you a guilt trip, as it's called. Abused victims sometimes feel guilty for the crime committed by the abuser, just the opposite of what it should be. And yet, when someone criticizes us, we shouldn't just you know, dismiss it. We ought to consider, well, is there, why does that person think that way? What body, what uh, bodily behavior, communication behavior patterns is giving that impression to this person? What do I need to change? First John 1 and verse 9 tells us it's the solution for guilty feelings. Of course, sometimes I've prayed, uh, I didn't, I felt guilty, and I don't know, why am I feeling guilty? I don't know. Well, let me think about it. Oh, I know what it is. I was watching television, and I failed to pray, or I failed to study the Bible. So if you have a guilty feeling, ask God to help you to know, why do I feel guilty? And then acknowledge the guilt, and then do as John says here in 1 John 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So some people, of course, don't really have the faith. They say, well, I'm unworthy to be forgiven. But if you have a repentant attitude, then you can accept 
in faith that God has forgiven you. And that's extremely important. It's a part, of course, of the attitude that we have of the Passover, understanding that Christ's shed blood does cleanse us from all sin. But we have to have that repentant attitude and be able to examine ourselves and see what areas in our lives we need to change. And even at this time of year, teenagers can examine themselves as well and to see what do I need to change, what goals do I need to set, what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses, and ask God for help to change. As teenagers and young people can do that as well, even though you will not be taking the Passover service formally. We have a sermon number 222, Learning Lessons. We have to ask, what lessons have I learned this past year? And I've, uh, of course, you know, I have my little week at a glance, and I write down here my lessons. I haven't written down them all, but I was neglecting that, and I realized more recently, write those lessons down. 12-01, mm-hmm, 12-02, mm-hmm. 12-03, mm-hmm. So you write down your lessons, and uh, they make a big difference as you prepare for the Passover. Let's turn to Romans 2 and verse 4. But if you have sinned, and if you have a repentant attitude, have the faith to accept God's forgiveness. It's based on repentance, as we see here in Romans 2 and verse 4. A very powerful verse. The Apostle Paul, of course, is talking to the Jews and Gentiles, or that is writing to the Jews and Gentiles in Rome. And he says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness? Romans 2, verse 4. Forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So we need to be careful that we do not have a hard or an impenitent heart. And again, read Hebrews, the third chapter and the fourth chapter about the Israel, the Israelites in the Exodus and how they had hardness of heart. They didn't have that acceptance. They didn't have that responsiveness to God's guidance and his correction. So all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Paul, of course, is uh, showing that no nation or group is uh, better than the other as he's addressing both the, the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome. And then we realize, what does, what does the Passover mean to God the Father and to Christ? Well, God, as we heard already, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. What an awesome sacrifice and an awesome gift That was for God the Father and for Christ himself, the Lamb. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We understand as we read through the book of Revelation, the Lamb is always forgotten. The marriage of the Lamb has come. For example, we read in uh, Revelation 19. And then in Revelation 13, it says uh, in verse 8, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's Revelation 13, verse 8. That is part of God's plan from the foundation of the world. So believe in God's love for us and his promise to forgive you based on repentance and based on the sacrifice of Christ. So be willing to accept God's forgiveness as you repent. First John 1, and we'll turn back there. We had verse 9, which is such an awesome promise that God gives us that He will cleanse us from all sin. First John 1 and verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. So we have that promise. Commitment number two is to accept God's forgiveness. Commitment number three is to forgive others. Let's turn to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Ephesians 4. You know, some have grown up in dysfunctional homes, and they've had parents or siblings or children who have just been hateful, spiteful, 
never said I love you. And it's been very difficult for people coming out of homes with that kind of a background. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Ephesians 4. And again, uh, Ephesians 4 is a chapter that has to do with the new man and the old man. There's a long parallel to Colossians 3. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and starting in verse uh, 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Is there a, is there a tinge of revenge? You know, I've, I've had to check in my attitude in the past. Sometimes that, that hot spot, that, that anger, that flash is a, a, a malice in that. It's something that I had to repent of. But evil speaking put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Be committed to forgive others. As I was saying, some have come from homes that have had the uh, dysfunction, have not had uh, comfort, assurance, or love. And uh, I've mentioned this to you before, but I know it's been helpful to some. It's from uh, the book by Dr. Paul Meyer. Uh, Dr. Meyer works with, has clinics all over uh, the United States uh, trying to help people overcome depression. And in his book, Don't Let Jerks Get the Best of You, he talks about people coming from dysfunctional homes. And he says, a patient can be depressed, quote, I'm quoting now, page 170, quote, a patient can be depressed for many years, then forgive the one who has caused his repressed anger and totally recover from the depression because his serotonin has been restored naturally and the brain is able to work correctly. Serotonin is something that helps the, the uh, wellness and the uh, feeling of, of assurance in the brain. On one, on page 152, he says he states that deep-seated anger can lower your serotonin level and cause clinical depression. But forgiving others can actually lead to overcoming depression. People that have been depressed for years, and uh, that is really a remarkable um, clinical uh, event that has taken place. Let's turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, in fact, uh, Dr. Pierre in a sermonette just a few weeks ago uh, told us to memorize these two verses at the end of uh, the model prayer, outline prayer. Matthew 6, verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Yes, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Number three, be committed to forgive others. Number four, be committed to avoid spiritual weakness. Hebrews, the second chapter, Hebrews 2. And really that's something that you consider when you're counseling for baptism a lifelong commitment. You count the cost. Am I going to be committed to avoid spiritual weakness? Am I going to be committed to overcome till they are the very end of my life? Hebrews, the second chapter, starting with verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Yes, earnest heed, to pay attention, to be alert, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. How shall we escape, God tells us or asks us, if we neglect so great a salvation? And so that's also a part of the warning of the the message to the church at Laodicea. You become lukewarm. 
You know, you're rich in your own eyes. You know, you don't need to pray every day. You don't need to read the Bible every day. You cannot neglect so great a salvation. We must be committed to avoid spiritual weakness. And, of course, we can do that by renewing God's Holy Spirit in us daily. And we need to ask God to intervene for us powerfully. So we come boldly before his throne of grace in Hebrews 4, verse 16, that we may obtain grace and mercy to help in time of need. And it's always a time of need for me. I don't know how it is for you. Number four, be committed to avoid spiritual weakness. Number five, along that same line, be committed to avoid bitterness. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, Hebrews 12 gives a strong warning about bitterness. Hebrews 12, verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it used the yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Yes, ask others to give you an evaluation. And you may not accept all of it, but you may realize, yes, there is a grain of truth to that. I must I need to make some changes. Verse twelve Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. And I know in the past decades ago, when I was uh, strongly corrected, I was a student at Ambassador College at that time, and I thought I was strongly corrected. I said, all right, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm just going to fade away into the oblivion. You know, (laughs) no, that's not what God says. You learn your lesson and you make straight paths for your feet and you go forward learning from the correction. That's what he's saying here. Make straight paths for your feet. Pursue peace, he goes on to say in verse 14, with all people in holiness without no man shall see the Lord. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Be careful for a root of bitterness. Some of you heard me tell the story before, but years ago, in Big Sandy, Texas, one of our church members had a um, oh a root. It was uh, horseradish. It was a horseradish root, and uh, he tried to get rid of it. He said, "Okay." He dug down and wanted to get rid of it, and uh, he thought he got rid rid of it, but it grew again. And so he dug a little deeper, and it grew back again. And he had a little droop. By the time he finally got rid of it, it was a hole about five feet deep. That root just kept growing back. And you have to root out that root of bitterness. And you have to recognize a root of bitterness. Don't ever let that root grow or to plant itself in you because it's it's extremely difficult to get out. And the only way it's going to get out is through great tribulation in your own life to realize, I better get that, that, that root of bitterness out. You have to, again, look at yourself and realize... I better not get angry at someone else. I better love my enemies, that unconditional love that God gives us in Matthew 5, verses 44 through 48. Do good to those that persecute you. Pray for those that despitefully use you. So you do what Christ says. And we have to, again, be angry at sin and not at the sinner. Proverbs 8, verse 13 The fear of the eternal is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverse mouth do I hate. Now, we are to have anger and hate at sin, not the sinner. Romans 12.9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And we're in a world that is just rampant with wickedness, evil, oppression, sin, every form of evil. Just yesterday on the uh, NPR radio, I was listening to a commentary. That was uh, March 9, 2012, um, for those that might hear this in the future. 
and they were talking about some of the uh, gross and slanderous language and accusations on radio. And the commentator said, which I thought was quite a quotable quote, America rewards incivility. And you just think about it, it's rampant. The, the political uh, campaigns have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars putting ads on radio telling everything evil and wrong about the political opponent. No, just not God's way of doing things. America rewards incivility, and those individuals are the ones that are getting elected, or, or the front runners, we might just say. And then I just got Sports Illustrated magazine uh, yesterday, or the day before. It's March 12, 2012. And I'd heard about this, but I didn't know that um, NFL players, that is the National Football League uh, players, were brought up before the the league uh, administration accused of being paid for injuring an opponent. This is a quote from page 37 of that Sports Illustrated magazine. Quote, the NFL, the National Football League, charges that over the past three seasons, between 22 and 27 Saints, that is the New Orleans Saints, not you, 22 or 27 Saints participated in a bounty program that paid defenders for specific achievements on the field, including injuring opponents. And they got a certain amount of money if the opponent was taken off the field in a, in a stretcher, uh, another amount of money if they were just kept out of the game for a while. Well, that's the way the world is. It's a world that hates, that destroys, that hurts, that harms and we have to be just the opposite when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's easy to get angry and to hold a grudge and to let that turn to bitterness. But we have to practice unconditional love. And you can avoid bitterness by praying for your enemies and not justifying yourself. That's another dimension, of course, of forgiveness. Sometimes someone brings something to yourself. and I know I found myself, I was caught sometimes, and said, well, Dick, you know, you should have done A, B, and C. And I said, but, yes, but, so justifying myself, we say, yes, but, you're justifying yourself, you give the answer for why I did the wrong thing. Well, I hesitate to tell you this, but I, I think it's uh, a good illustration. Uh, of course, tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31, I may have already uh, quoted it, uh, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So we need to judge ourselves, not justify ourselves. Again, Dr. Charles Dorothy uh, had one of those memorable uh, moments and he's talking about self-justification. Instead of repenting of our sins, some justify themselves. And maybe you borrowed the car without permission. He said, yes, but I needed the car. Well, Dr. Dorothy uh, said, brethren, many of you are afflicted with a disease called yabiditis. Instead of saying, I have sinned, you say, yes, but. Yeah, but. You have yabiditis. Number five, after avoiding bitterness, is, I'm in number six. Number five was be committed to avoid bitterness. Number six is be committed to overcome. Let's turn to Revelation, the second chapter. Most of you are very familiar with the seven churches and how Jesus said to every single one of them, unless you overcome, and some of us think, well, we're, maybe I'm Philadelphian, therefore, I don't have to worry about it. No, everyone is responsible for filling Christ's instruction to overcome. And so he tells us in the loveless church, Revelation 2, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So he's telling him, the loveless church, you need to get back to your first love, the persecuted church. Again, verse uh, 11, 
He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And then the compromising church at the uh, end of, uh, well, the middle of verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. The corrupt church says in uh, verse 26, he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Then the dead church, verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father. And even the faithful church, he who overcomes, verse 12, Revelation 3, verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. And the lukewarm church, and uh, he tells us in verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, and I also, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So one of the ways of examining yourself for the Passover is to read through these messages to the seven churches and see, does this apply to me? Have I lost my first love? Am I Laodicean? And to examine yourself, and if the shoe fits, put it on. If the correction is needed, make that correction. And we'll be learning more, of course, during the Days of Unleavened Bread, which show us our responsibility, our part in God's plan of salvation, that God has reconciled us to his son to himself by the death of his son. And now we need to overcome and to transform our nature into God's divine nature. We all know about human nature. In Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or incurably ill, one of the translations has it. So that's human nature. Albert Einstein commented on human nature. He said, two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the universe. And Mark Twain uh, said, there is a great deal of human nature in people. Well, you're just saying the obvious. But we have a challenge, and it's a whole lifetime to overcome, to grow and overcome Growing, what's that song? Overcoming daily by the Spirit sword, standing on the promises of God. You overcome daily with the Spirit sword, meaning the Word of God, the promises of God. You overcome daily. You change and you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It tells us in Second Peter 3, verse 18. Number six, be committed to overcome. Number seven, be committed to endure to the end. Turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we have to endure to the end. We have to persevere, looking under Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So again, we have to strive against sin. We must be committed to overcome and we must be committed to endure to the end, to run the race with patience or with endurance, as it says here in Hebrews 12 and verse 1. Let's turn to Second Timothy, the fourth chapter, Second Timothy 4. I mean, one individual did endure to the end. He set us a wonderful example, and that was the Apostle Paul. He went through all types of privations and challenges and trials. Second Timothy, the fourth chapter, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. 
and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He said he had finished the race. He had kept the faith. And we thank God for those who have died in the faith. March 12th is the anniversary of the martyrdom in Milwaukee. And we honor those who died by their, we thank of, we think of their faith. We thank of their example. So it tells us in Hebrews 11:13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. And so we look forward to that resurrection. So we thank God for those who have died in the faith. And there can be no greater honor that we can speak of our brethren who have died, that they have died in the faith and they are sleeping in Jesus, waiting for that resurrection when the seventh trumpet sounds. And we all look forward to that. Matthew twenty four thirteen says, He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. So we make a commitment at baptism to go all the way, right to the very end of our lives, being close to God and to Christ. Mr. D. Barapartian wrote an article called The Point of No Return. It was in the Good News magazine, April, May 1966. I didn't realize when I was looking this up, it was so uh, long ago, just 45 years ago. He gives the example of a Boeing 707 jet on its way to San Francisco that had developed serious engine trouble in his article, The Point of No Return, and that it had gone past the point of having enough fuel to return to Hawaii on its way to San Francisco. And he says, We have already passed the point of no return, the captain said with finality. We can't go back. So he's applying that to our Christian life. And he says, if we are deeply converted, we too should have passed the point of no return. We too should have severed all ties with our point of embarkation, the world. Have you, he asks. So we have to endure to the end and persevere to the end. We've surrendered our lives to Christ. We belong to him. Number seven is be committed to endure to the end. Number eight is to trust Christ to save you, Ephesians 2 and verse 8. Trust Christ to save you. Now, our purpose is to help others into the kingdom of God, and we certainly avoid a selfish salvation. And Jesus said, he that seeks to save his life will lose it, but he that loses his life for my sake in the gospel shall say it. So we lay down our lives, we sacrifice our time and our lives for others, so they can be in the kingdom and to preach the gospel so that the gospel can go out to the world. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. And so the world says, well, you've already been saved. You're once saved, always saved. But that's not what this is saying. Professing Christians that say it's their faith that saved them, it's faith by their works. It's just the opposite. We are not saved by our own faith. We are saved by Christ's faith. Galatians 2.20, Galatians 2.16. It's by the faith of Christ that we are saved. And if not yourselves, it is the gift of God. The faith is a gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast, but we are his poema, that is the word for word workmanship, which means in the Greek, his masterpiece, his artwork. You are God's work of art, and he's creating in you that wonderful work of art. Romans, the fifth chapter, gives us the wonderful promise that we are saved by Christ's life. We are saved from our past sins by his shed blood, but that isn't the ultimate salvation. That's the past, present, and future aspects of salvation. And here we find the future aspect of it as well and the process that we're now experiencing. Romans 5, verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son... 
much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Christ is alive. He's at the right hand of God the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7, verse 25. He's your great high priest. He's my great high priest. He intercedes for us because he knows the pain, the suffering, the agony, the betrayal that maybe you and some others have experienced. He knows what it's like so he can intercede for us. Let's turn to Psalm 6, Psalm 7. There is a time when you need God's help and you need to cry out for God to save you. Remember, I won't turn there, but you know the story of uh, Peter when Jesus was walking on the water and he said, Lord, bid me to come. And Jesus bid Peter go walk out in the water and Of course, you know the story that when he saw the wind boisterous, he began to sink. And he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus let him drown. No, it doesn't say that. He said, Jesus immediately struck out his hand and pulled him up. There's a time to ask Christ to save you. And so David did. He didn't have any embarrassment of asking for God's help in time of need. Psalm 6 O Eternal, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Eternal, how long? No, he was able to express his feelings. God's not threatened when you express your anxieties, your worries, and your feelings to him. How long is it going to be, Lord? Return, O Eternal, deliver me, O save me for your mercy's sake. Now, if you're going to ask God to save you, then you ought to give a reason why. David gives a reason. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? When I'm in the grave, you're not going to hear me giving thanks, so keep me alive and you'll hear me giving you thanks. But he asked God to save him. Psalm 7. O eternal my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. So you should, you need to pray and ask God to save you and to rejoice in the promise that we are saved by His life. And so many of us in God's church have been going through very trials and tests and pain and suffering and disease. And we also know that it is a general pattern that before the Passover and before the Feast of Tabernacles, there generally seems to be more numerous incidences of of trials and tests for God's people. And let me just turn to 1 Peter 5. I want to give you this encouragement in addition to crying out to God for help, but claim God's promise here in 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, starting with the... Verse 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Now, notice this, verse 6, verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And I've done that many times. I just have so many of these burdens. I'm trying to solve them by myself, and it seems like I hit against a wall, and there's no solution to the problem. I'm casting all my cares upon you. You've told me to do that, and I'm doing that, Lord. Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. We will experience many trials and tests, but if we surrendered our lives to Christ, we know that we belong to Him. Back in uh, some decades ago, there was one lady in the congregation who was uh, rather forward, I'd say, I guess, and she was kind of putting her husband down and... uh, She had cancer, and about 35 church members helped her and her take care of her when she was at home in bed, and she still had this attitude of putting her husband down. And I I knew she was dying, and I, I felt as a pastor that I needed to tell her 
one thing that she needed to perfect her character, and that was that she had not expressed any sadness or or tears. And I talked with her gently and said, you know, uh, Mrs. So-and-so, um, you know, Jesus cried with many tears and was heard in that he cried, you know, he cried out and shed many tears. And it really would be helpful if you could shed a tear. And uh, I didn't say anything about her putting her husband down. I don't believe at that time so many years ago. But the lady said that, that she had a change of heart. And instead of putting her husband down and saying, you know, you belong to me, buddy, kind of attitude, uh, there in her sick bed, she called her husband over and he reached down and she said, pull me up. She got into a sitting position. She looked into his eyes and said, I belong to you. It was a change of attitude in her heart and mind, one that was humbling, saying, I am going to belong to you. And, of course, that's our attitude when we go to the Passover. And if you've never said to God the Father or Christ, I belong to you, you need to consider it because you're bought with the greatest price that has ever been paid. You were redeemed. You were purchased by Christ's blood. You belong to Christ. You are his doulos, his bond servant. As I was watching Dr. Meredith's uh, sermon last night, it's on lcg.org, prepare for the Passover. And he was mentioning uh, the word doulos uh, in the Greek, meaning bond servant, slave servant. And he also mentioned in that sermon uh, that we are the church of the forgiven. So again, I would encourage all of you that uh, have access to the Internet to see uh, Dr. Meredith's program on lcg.org. Just click on sermons and it'll be uh, Dr. Meredith's sermon, Prepare for Passover, is the title of it. So number eight is be committed to ask Christ to save you. We have the promise there in Romans 5.10 that we shall be saved by his life. Number nine, be committed to thank God continually. How many times a day do you thank God? Just at meals or at a blessing when you have uh, your evening meal perhaps or, or breakfast? Let's turn to Second Timothy, the third chapter. 2 Timothy 3, again, we need to thank God continually as a, an attitude because 2 Timothy tells us that in the last days we're going to have attitudes that are just the opposite. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. You know, the sin of ingratitude afflicts our nation and people all over the world. Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but, not, but denying its power from such people turn away. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. So how thankful are you, the... The age in which we live is characterized by ingratitude, unthankfulness. And yet God gives us victories, victories over our human nature, victories over the world, victories over Satan. And so in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, verse 7, after he's talking about the resurrection, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God does give us that victory, and we need to be thankful. Of course, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it says, Pray without ceasing in everything, in everything, give thanks. Because every breath of air you breathe comes from God. Number nine, be committed to thank God continually. Number ten, is brought out in verse 58 here, 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Number 10, be committed 
to support God's work. We already read Matthew 9, verses 38 and 39, to be praying for more laborers to come into the harvest. We heard a sermon a few weeks ago on the sevenfold mission of the church and the work. Number one was to preach the gospel of the kingdom and the true name of Jesus Christ. Number two is to preach the end-time prophecies and the Ezekiel warning to the Israelitish people. Number three was feed the flock and build all our members to the stature of Jesus Christ as best we can. Number four is be examples to the church of God and to the world of Christ's way of life. Number five, learn and practice servant leadership in all our dealings with others. Number six, restore apostolic Christianity in all that this implies. And number seven, build an atmosphere of radiant faith within God's church. Today, uh, Dr. Douglas Winnell is in Christ Church Barbados uh, giving the uh, Tomorrow's World special presentation. And he'll be in Port of Spain, Trinidad tomorrow for another special presentation. So we'll be praying for him. And then, of course, uh, um, Dr. Scott Winnell will be uh, there next weekend to follow up. So we'll be praying for them. Remember, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are the light of the world. Be committed to support God's work. Jesus said in John 4:34, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. So I hope our sustenance and our energy and our zeal and our enthusiasm for life revolves around the mission that God has given us to perform. God has a plan of life, a plan of salvation for every boy and girl, for every man and woman, and every sinner. And the Passover is the first step in God's plan for salvation. He wants us in his royal family, and he loves every one of the seven billion people on planet Earth. The Passover demonstrates that love. So, brethren, be be prepared, prepare physically and spiritually, but prepare for the Passover by making these commitments. Maintain a repentant attitude. Accept God's forgiveness. Be committed to forgive others. Be committed to avoid spiritual weakness. Be committed to avoid bitterness. Be committed to overcome. Be committed to endure to the end. Be committed to trust Christ to save you. Thank God continually and support God's work. Judge yourself. Be repentant. And as we prepare for the Passover, let's be thankful for the gift of God's grace, the gift of his forgiveness the gift of victory that he gives us over sin, the freedom from sin that he gives us, and be bold in accepting God's calling to be his children forever. So, brethren, you made that commitment at baptism. Follow through on that commitment. Take the Passover willingly, devotedly, in faith, and with deep thanksgiving and gratitude. And remember to renew your commitment and tell your Father and your Lord, I belong to you.